chair of the Utah Coalition Against Pornography. I've had a number of you say to me, what are you doing here this morning? Because you associate me with working with homeless friends and low-income friends and uh, refugees, and you're wondering why I'm in this uh, setting. I'm very fortunate to work with a great group of people um, and got involved with the area of anti-pornography some 12 years ago. And we're fighting... Uh, Are we winning? Sometimes we're not so sure, but we have wins along the way as we fight what we term as a battle that's attacking our families and individuals. We thank you so much for taking the time out of a Saturday morning to come to this important event, and we people who are looking for seats. If there's an empty seat, excuse me, an empty seat by the side of you, would you mind raising your hand, please? So, that, oh, there's one. There's several seats down here for people who are still looking for seats. Even further down. We really would like to accommodate everybody who, who came. We have over a thousand people here today. And over to the side. Keep, if you wouldn't mind keeping your hands up, that would be great. Thank you. We are grateful to the uh, Utah Coalition Against Pornography uh, board members. If you would please stand or raise your hand, board members who have helped plan this conference. Thank you so much. Um, We have some very uh, distinguished guests here today, and many of them you'll be introduced to later as uh, just before they present. Um, I would like to welcome Senator Utah State Senator Todd Weiler here. I'd also like to welcome Elder Summerhays, Elder Lynn Summerhays and his wife Anne Summerhays who are representing the, um, the LDS Church. We also have other members <clears throat> of the Relief Society and the Young Women's Presidency. I hope I'm getting this right. Not, you know, being a Presbyterian, I've had to learn a lot. <laughs> but I, I, I try. Um, but my friends have, 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 have done well and, and taught me along the way. There's still another hand over here of empty seats as people are coming in and down the front here. But thank you for our guests for taking the time to be here. We really appreciate it. We know Saturdays can be um, special. I actually prayed for rain because I think more people come if it's not a very nice day to go out in the sunshine. But um, the prayers were mostly answered because a lot of people turned up. But we have clouds. We, we, we don't, we don't ha- have the rain right now. We're very grateful to Net Nanny and the Catholic Diocese of Salt Lake and Family Watch International for helping to sponsor uh, this conference uh, today and the great support that the LDS Church, Church Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, gives us. We are very appreciative of their support all, all year round. 
We send our thanks to President Thomas Monson and his councillors for sending the notice out to all the wards and stakes. We also send the notice out to the interfaith group, the Salt Lake Interfaith Roundtable. We have many um, Protestant members here. It also went out to an evangelical group of pastors calling standing, called Standing Together, and we have several of uh, that group here today. So we are, we are quite diverse, and we appreciate it because this, this is an issue that affects people of all faiths. You'll notice that registration fee was um, kept quite low at $15. We did that deliberately over the last couple of years to encourage more people to come. Um, it, it does mean that we don't have enough money to supply food. Uh, we're hoping that some of you have snacks in, in, your, or in your bags or, or pockets if, if you do get hungry. I have a couple of protein bars if anybody gets to that desperate stage, 30 milligrams of protein, and I, I'd be happy to give them to someone who's getting desperate for protein. Now, the, your notice is a post-conference question and answer, <coughs> excuse me, period, and at, at that time we will have the presenters up here and answer quest that you may have that you can write and put into the, the boxes at the back of the room. And at that one, we will be giving out granola bars. We have 700 granola bars, so it'll be first come, first served. But we didn't want you to go that extra hour and have the, the stomach problem. So we'll have water and granola bars. And uh, we think you'll get the value from your $15, though, from our wonderful speakers that we have here today. You'll notice that in, in your program, in the brochure, there's an evaluation form, and we would very much like you to fill that out after each session and then put them in the boxes that are supplied out in the foyer. <clears throat> These are very valuable. We've changed the format. We've changed the speakers. We've changed the venue over the years based on the feedback that we have received from many of you and many others who, who aren't here today. So have um, DVDs that can be picked up at the UCAP table out in the foyer. It's a UCAP table and there, there are two DVDs. One is for um, all faiths and one is made particularly for members of, of the LDS church. <clears throat> I'd like to recognize uh, Judy Cox. Judy is here today to, um, let's see Judy, there, there you are. Judy um, is the one you may have read about in the news who actually um, went to a store called Pac Sun and objected to the t-shirts that were considered by many to be somewhat pornographic. Judy? She was brave and courageous. Uh, there is a national petition going on right now. <clears throat> if you go to MIM or Morality and Media uh, on the internet and sign up for that, uh, that petition. But talk to Judy in between. She's a delightful person who went forth and based on her values and convictions felt that she absolutely had to do something. Now, you know as well as I do that during the legislative session, 
Um, many bills were passed. Four, there were 721 bills put in the hopper. 476 bills passed. And we had a lot of great senators and representatives who really worked hard on the bills. There was one bill... Senate Bill 227, sponsored by Senator Todd Weiler, entitled Exposure of Children to Pornography. Many of our legislators don't know some of the harmful effects of pornography. What we do know, based on a lot of research, some of which was done by Dr. Jennifer Brown in Utah, is the effect that pornography has on children's brains, developing brains. And what Senator Weiler did was to bring forth a bill to say that a judge and the lawyers in a custody battle must show if a child has intentionally been exposed to pornography by one or both parents because that should affect the outcome of the custody battle. In order to do that, Senator Weiler had to educate his colleagues on why this was necessary. He had to compromise and come up with a substitute bill. And he's very good at compromising, actually. And then there were about 17 steps in to get this bill. When you pull it up, you see all the steps that were taken in committees and elsewhere. And um, this bill finally passed uh, the Senate and went over to the House and eventually passed the House on the last day. And it will become law with the governor's signature in the next week or so. I would like to recognize Senator Todd Weiler for what he's done, not only with this bill, but all of the other work he does. He is committed to the citizens of Utah, and he's committed to the very values, the very beliefs that many of you have. So please recognize Senator Todd Weiler. Sometimes when I would pull a senator or a representative off the floor and talk to them about this, they'd say, oh, yeah, Senator Weiler already told me about this. I, yeah, I think it is a good bill. And others would say, what are you de doing, Pamela, dealing with this awful issue, pornography? <laughs> and I would explain why I was very supportive of this bill. So congratulations to you. And um, when it's signed and becomes law, it'll probably be known as the Weiler bill, but I'm not sure you want Weiler and pornography in the same sentence. But, but thank you. We do know uh, that this issue of pornography is, is growing. Um, if you look at some of the industry statistics, you realize that many people are in this for the money that they can make, and they're ruining people's lives. If you look at the fact that there are about 68 million hits a day on the porn sites, on the internet. If you realize that the average age of the first exposure to pornography is 11 years old, and that every second over 28,000 users are viewing pornography, 
we think perhaps it doesn't happen in Utah. But as many of you know, it does, and it is continuing to grow despite all the great people and the work they're doing. But what we have found <clears throat> is that our efforts are making a difference. Efforts like Judy Cox, efforts like Fight the New Drug, efforts from Women for Decency, efforts from so many groups that have come together to really make a difference. Keep in mind that when people are viewing child pornography, that that victim is being re-victimized thousands and thousands of times over. Keep in mind that sometimes when people are viewing adult pornography, they get bored with it and they go to and move to child pornography. And recently there were arrests made in Canada and the United States and in Europe of a ring of child pornographers. Keep in mind that this is something you can be involved in and something that you can help with. I have a challenge for you. <clears throat> I would like to ask that when you leave this conference that you will commit to telling five people what you learned at this conference. Whether they be friends whether they be neighbors, whether they be church acquaintances, you will actually tell people what you learned at this conference and ask them to share it. How many of you would be willing to do that? Great, unanimous. Gosh, this looks like one of the LDS churches I went to where everybody <laughs> raised their hands. Wow, that's great. I, li I like that. That looked familiar. I talked about the fact that we have so many um, distinguished presenters, um, some from Utah, and let's see, we in Dem uh, from Denver, we have from uh, Texas, and we also have from uh, Pennsylvania. So a real mixture of wonderful presenters. And our first presenter, who is a keynote speaker that I heard um, many years ago, about four, five, six years ago, I think, and I thought, wow. This, he, he is terrific. He's a neurosurgeon and a clinical associate professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Texas at the Health Science Center there. And he also serves as director of the neurosurgical training for the residency program at the Methodist Hospital. He's been traveling in between his uh, surgical cases. He's been traveling both nationally and uh, internationally and has written a number of um, articles and also chapters in various books. And his first book, um, He Restoreth My Soul, which is outside at the SA Addiction uh, booth. He's also spoken addiction in Jakarta and Indonesia. He's spoken at a number of universities and colleges in the country. Not surprising, he's currently listed uh, in the best doctors in, Amer in America. He's a fellow of the American College uh, of Surgery, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, and uh, 2009, uh, Dr. Don Hilton and his wife, Jana, received the um, Guardian of the Light Award from the Lighted Candle Society. He serves on the board of directors of Morality and Media and on the board of advisors of SA Lifeline Foundation. 
Uh, he and his wife, Jana, have served <clears throat> as service missionaries in the LDS Church's uh, addiction program for over five years now. They're the parents of five children and also grandparents of five uh, grandchildren. And uh, Dr. Hilden enjoys traveling, reading, writing, speaking, playing basketball, running. <clears throat> and I noted with interest that he loves fishing in Alaska. And did I tell you how much I love Alaskan halibut the next time you go? <laughs> it can be frozen and brought back with you. So I just wanted to drop that, that hint. But we, we are delighted to have Dr. Hilton today as our first uh, keynote speaker, Dr. Don Hilton. Thank you, Pamela. <clears throat> Can you hear me in the back okay? Can you hear me in the back in hand? Okay. It is wonderful to be with you today and to have this marvelous opportunity. I'm going to see if I can uh, get this PowerPoint back now. Just a moment. Okay. All right. Let's see if technology core. There we go. It's such a, an honor to be with you, to be with you in this cause, and to be discussing this subject. Uh, it is sometimes as we've gone around in, in religious organizations and secular venues, some will come and say, well, aren't you miserable even talking about this subject? And actually, we're not for several reasons. Perhaps the main reason is we've met some of the most wonderful people in the world in doing so. People that have learned about recovery, about prevention, who are models for healing in the world. And that has been a marvelous experience. You, the Utah Coalition Against Pornography, I love that name. It's bold. It makes a statement. Are a group of individuals and organizations who have decided to take a stand against pornography. Despite a growing cultural chorus in our times that is increasingly for pornography. I would like to talk today about the chaos that pornography perpetuates on individuals, families, society. And my perspective regarding what we can do to be effective in our chosen stance is a coalition against rather than for pornography. In doing so, I will discuss today some of the goals and tactics of the coalition for pornography. This coalition is not some nebulous concept, but is a well-organized, funded group of business, entertainment, individuals, organizations who are determined to mainstream pornography. They want it in your home. They want to create a world where pornography is ubiquitous, where your children will find pornography, your, your teenagers. A recent paper that was published by one such group, an academic group, actually stated that perhaps pornography is good for adolescents. Perhaps it will broaden their perspective. They want to establish through faulty pseudoscience that pornography is not only harmless but actually beneficial to individuals, couples, and to society. In this goal, they are experiencing remarkable success. 
They want to remove, for instance, the social stigma from pornography, and they want to replace the word pornography with, their, from their perspective, the less biased term visual sexual stimuli, or VSS. Of course, they do not consider themselves biased. For instance, the SPAN lab at UCLA wants to prevent therapists from treating clients for sexual addiction, which they say does not exist, and they have already advocated clients reporting their therapists to state licensing boards for treating them for this non-existent, from their perspective, entity, pornography addiction. In fact, this has been removed since, this uh, screen, this is a screenshot, but basically it says to go report anyone that's treating you for pornography addiction because it's not a problem. It's just that you have high desire, inherently high sexual desire, so it's just you. This coalition for pornography, of which this group is is merely one cog, uh, is well organized. They're well funded. They're powerful. They have PR machines. Any paper they publish, no matter how flawed it is and how methodologically unsound, is instantly covered by a fawning press. Other papers which which demonstrate the harm that pornography causes are marginalized and ignored by the same press. They have an agenda. They are determined. They are relentless. I will spend some time talking about them, who they are, what they say, and then I will talk about what I believe we can do to help change the cultural current. If we are going to be against pornography, we must understand them, what motivates them, and how they operate. Sun Tzu said, know your enemy and know yourself, and you can fight a hundred battles without desire. Now, in interacting with them, our goal is not to destroy them, it's to confound, convert them to being against pornography, or to refute their claims. That's really our goal. Now, chaos is, is described or defined as a term of, um, or a state of utter confusion. I can think of no more apt medium which represents and perpetuates chaos than pornography. In our rush to flee from religion, morality, and values, we have run over a cultural cliff into a sort of emotional anarchy. After writing his multi-volume Story of Civilization, historian Will Durant said, Intellect is therefore a vital force in history, but it can also be a dissolvent and destructive power. Out of every hundred new ideas, 99 or more will probably be inferior to the traditional responses which they propose to replace. No one man, however brilliant or well-informed, can come in one lifetime of such fullness of understanding to safely judge Smith the customs or institutions of his society. For these are the wisdom of generations after centuries of experiment in the laboratory of history. A youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires, and if he is unchecked by custom morals or laws, he may ruin his life before he matures sufficiently to understand that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group. Interestingly, Will Durant was an agnostic. He wasn't uh, making this statement from a religious, say, perspective, although there's nothing wrong with that, of course. He was an agnostic, so he was a historian making a historical comment here. 
And pornography has become the new religion for millions who worship its power. Its ability to affect chaos rests in its role as a solvent. What does a solvent do? It dissolves things. It does relationships. Pornography is an emotional solvent. It dissolves between individuals, couples. It dehumanizes and commoditizes humans. It is addictive. I do not use that word lightly. It has the power to affect the brain's reward center in a profound and very, very biologically fundamental way. Those who have become addicted will value other human relationships less, not only those with spouses and children, but professional focus and friendships as well. There are currently few studies looking at pornography specifically and the question of addiction, and some that have been published have argued against an addictive model. A very interesting study has been done at Cambridge University, which supports an addictive model. It is not yet published. I will discuss these studies later. But in order to understand why pornography can become addictive, it is important to understand some basic concepts about how the brain learns first. I will spend a few minutes discussing this process and then move on to more specifics about pornography. Now, as humans, we each have a brain. Although um, my third grade teacher, Ms. Maddox, might take exception to me with that. Um, Our brain is a a powerful force in the world uh, collectively because it can learn. It is a marvelous instrument through which we can interact with this physical world. But it is in learning that we are able to do this. It enables us to laugh, to cry, to compute, comprehend, invent, create, to love. But it can also learn to hate, destroy, and to denigrate. We now know much about how the brain learns, and it has turned our previous perspectives upside down. Did you know that when you learn something, there is a physical change in the structure of your brain? It's as if the brain is plastic, is moldable by thoughts and ideas, literally. I'm not speaking metaphorically here. Two decades ago, some scientists decided to scan the brain of violin players. And they found that the same part of the brain that controls the left hand of the violin players actually enlarges. And that this enlargement is related to the degree of training. Many other studies have confirmed this finding. And other studies have shown that intense learning of all kinds affects the brain in the same way and causes this physical change. For instance, medical students were scanned before and after a three-month period of intensive studying for exams, and lo and behold, they found that, the, that those parietal areas of the brain actually enlarged in that study period. Now, this is not simply correlation. Uh, through these and many other experiments, we know that learning is causative with regard to physically changing the brain. Now, this is an intuitive concept, but it's been actualized in the laboratory as well. We have a name for this changeability of the brain. We call this neuroplasticity. Not all learning is positive, however. Two neuroscientists in a paper looking at how brain cells change with addiction said addiction represents a pathological yet powerful form of learning and memory. Pathology in medicine is defined as the study of disease, a departure from the normal. Addiction is diseased, disordered learning.
It imprints harmful learning patterns on the brain and writes in powerful software into the brain's logic and memory centers. With time, this software actually changes the hard drive on the computer that is our brain. Recovery involves a similar learning process and requires tremendous effort and time to rewrite the software and eventually change the hard drive back to a more original, functional state. We should not be surprised to learn that addiction is associated with physically changing the brain as well. Interestingly, virtually every study of addiction has shown shrinkage or atrophy in areas of the brain associated with reward and judgment. Note that these changes not only involve substance addictions, but also behavioral addictions, such as to food and sex, pedophilia in this case, as well. Interestingly, these studies were all correlative. That is, researchers looked at the brains of those who had already become addicted. Critics would say that perhaps they were already born, they were born that way, or maybe the changes had nothing to do with neuroplasticity, maybe with physical effects, for instance, on the brain from the various addictions and their comorbidities. They ignore, however, recent studies, such as this paper published in the journal Plus One, which the argues supported a causative role in examining brain shrinkage in adolescents experiencing Internet addiction. These authors summarized, our results suggested that long-term Internet addiction would result in brain structural alterations, which probably can do chronic dysfunction in subjects with addiction Internet disorder. Other studies have shown reversibility in the shrinkage of, this, of the brain with recovery, such as one involving methamphetamine addiction, where the brain actually enlarged after a period of recovery from methamphetamine addiction. Another study of individuals undergoing mindfulness therapy showed enlargement of the brain with such therapy. Now, if the brain is changing physically, what is happening at the cellular level with learning? It turns out that when we think, we turn on our DNA. DNA not only contains the blueprint for building our bodies, it also has codes which are transcribed when we think and learn. When we are learning about things that feel good to our bodies, certain DNA sections or transcripts are awakened and go to work producing proteins and other molecules which cause us to desire, to want. These proteins actually build new wires between brains, of which there are literally trillions, establishing new connections as we learn. Addiction involves establishing these new connections and turning off others. A process called pruning, as our brain defines what it is we want. Interestingly, with adolescents, the brain is not fully formed until the mid-20s. How does it continue to form? Well, two main things. One is myelination. Myelination simply means insulating the brain wires between different brain cell areas so that the brain can talk to different parts of itself with more quickness and clarity. So myelination helps the brain get up to speed, so to speak. And the second thing that happens is pruning. As adolescents get into their mid-20s, they prune back some of the connections that aren't needed. So that's why these frontal control areas in adolescents and even into the mid-20s aren't fully functional. That's why adolescents are more susceptible to addictive behaviors. Now, we have many chemicals in our brains which facilitate thinking, learning, and wanting. Our brain is a veritable pharmaceutical factory of sorts. 
So the following experience may illustrate that. Years ago, I had done some missionary work in Africa, and we've had the opportunity to go back a couple of times and visit that beautiful land. About 10 years ago, we went back, and we actually went up to Victoria Falls, and we had a couple of small planes take our group along the Zambezi River, and we took this picture as we were flying over the falls. We flew down a couple of hours along the Zambezi to a safari camp, and that's Zambia on the other side. It was a fascinating experience, but if you'll look on the other side of the bank, you'll see this grass. It's actually about 8 to 10 feet high. Now, one day we were going on a game drive, and our game ranger said, let's see if we can find some game in the adrenaline grass today. And I said, well, what, what's adrenaline grass? And he said, mm, you'll, you'll find out. <laughs> so we drove around through this high grass, and suddenly he stopped the Land Rover. Now, there's no door windows on this Land Rover. Okay? So he pulls up to this grass, and he says, do you see it? He was sitting kind of still, and we were like, see what? So he inched forward a little bit more. Now, if you look back, you can actually see the paw coming off to the side there. Um, and he was just sitting there, of course, watching the Zambezi River. Do lions like water? <laughs> yeah, but not that much. <laughs> he was waiting for something to drink, right? He was waiting for some fast food to come by. <laughs> and, and, of course, as we saw that, our, our hearts began to thump. And my daughter, Elizabeth, who was about 12, uh, she shifted in her seat. And they tell you to be still. And if you're still, the lion looks at the Land Rover as a big, smelly, oily animal that's not good to eat and sees it as a continuum. Well, suddenly Elizabeth became a unit. And this lion focused on her. Now, the guy, he has a gun, but it, you know, the confidence in gun speed, lion speed, you know. And so, so this, this lion walked around our Land Rover and then went back to the grass and plopped over and went back to sleep. Now, Everyone in that Land Rover, we all talked about it later, our hearts were thumping out of our chest. And we weren't breathing. We were totally still. And I thought, adrenaline grass. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) I'm a little slow, but I did get that one. Now, these are catecholamines. These are, this is adrenaline, the bottom one. It's, uh, and the top one is dopamine. Notice, even for you that aren't chemists, you can notice that they're almost the same thing. There's just one methyl group for you chemists there. Um, these are called catecholamines. They're excitatory. They tell the brain and the body, go. They're not stop. There's some stop chemicals in the brain as well, but these are go chemicals. And this adrenaline, this epinephrine, is extremely important. And that's what was causing our heart to thump. Is it a drug? Yeah, we have it on the crash cart in all our hospitals. And if someone's heart stops, we give them adrenaline, epinephrine, to start their heart. It's a drug. FDA thinks so. It is. What about the top one? Well, it's dopamine. And if you've had Parkinson's or if you know someone that has, you know that dopamine also helps people move that have Parkinson's disease. So these are clearly drugs, but our brain makes them very well. Now, Dopamine has another function, a very important function in pleasure. It's also a promoter of desire. It's the wanting chemical of the brain. It tells us what to want that will help us survive. It tells us to eat and to reproduce and rewards us when we do so. The dopamine factory, if you look down in the bottom right, you'll see this VTA over to the right. That's an area of the brain called the midbrain, a very primitive phylogenetic area of the brain. And 
it produces dopamine. It's the dopamine factory. Now, it sends wires, brain wires, over, if you'll notice, to this NCA. That's called the nucleus accumbens. Now, that's a little almond-sized area that's really the reward center of the brain. If, Ro- if the nucleus accumbens is Rome, it's the center of the reward world. All roads in the reward world of the brain lead to Rome, to, nu- to the nucleus accumbens. Notice that PFC. That's the executive control area. That's the part of your brain that says, think about that. It may have consequences, whatever the behavior is. So you notice that all these areas have wires and they all talk to each other. Remember, in adolescence, not as well. And in addiction, what happens is these areas are affected as well. So what happens? Now, if you notice that wire, the wires go all the way over to the new area. What happens at the end? This is a blow-up of what happens at the end of that wire. There are, this is a little, there's a little space between those brain cell, between the wire of one brain cell and the cell that it's connecting to. It never actually touches the cell. There's a space called the synapse. And the chemical, like in this case, dopamine, the go chemical, it's released from the end of that dopamine-producing cell after it's traveled all the way down the wire to that nucleus accumbens reward area. And when a reward comes that says, this is great, it says, okay, turn on the dopamine. The dopamine is released from the end of that cell. It crosses the synapse, and it locks onto those, those um, receptors. You can see the little triangles crossing across and locking on. And it's like a key. It turns the engine on. And that's what turns on the pleasure cell. It causes it to run. So this is a very important thing. Um, it happens that with cocaine, for instance, this is a cocaine here. Cocaine will cross the synapse and block. I mean, uh, cocaine will actually go back. And you notice on the far right how cocaine is blocking on those, on those, uh, re- those cells on the side, on those, uh, on those protein um, receptors. These are reuptake uh, receptors. What they do is they reuptake the dopamine. The brain body doesn't like to waste things. So after the dopamine does its thing, turns on the end, the brain says, yes, that's pleasure, I like that. The dopamine unhooks, goes back, and is reuptaken into the dopamine terminal cell. Cocaine prevents it from being reuptaken. And so it doesn't allow it to be reuptaken. So guess what? It stays in that cleft. It keeps the car turned on. It leaves the engine running at a high RPM. And so in response, what the body does, it says, hey, I like pleasure, but you're killing me. So it turns down the dopamine factory. It slows everything down. There's, there's, there's secondary results. There's secondary um, modifications that the brain does to try to get back to normal. And what happens is it resets this pleasure thermostat. So it actually reduces the number of dopamine receptors. Because the body is trying to say, well, I like pleasure, but you're killing me with it. You've got to slow it down some. And what happens then is there's something called the hedonic set point. It's our pleasure set point, our thermostat in the brain. And it resets that, that, that set point. And suddenly what was pleasurable doesn't do it anymore. Whether it's pornography or heroin or cocaine, it requires a higher and higher dose, level, magnitude. The frontal areas of the brain then fail to prevent the addicted person from realizing how much the addiction is harming them. And they therefore don't act to stop this. And so you can see these cells, these brain connect cells, how they can be altered. And that is physically altering not only the microstructure, but as we discussed earlier, the macrostructure. Now, Mark Lewis is a PhD. He was addicted to virtually every drug you could imagine. And 
amazingly, he gained recovery from his long-term drug addiction. And he wrote a book, a fascinating book, New York Times bestseller, called Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. And he talks not only about what it feels like to have this high um, heroin, pure white pleasure. He describes the, the physical draw that causes the person to want to experience these abnormal pleasures. And then he describes what happens in the brain cells in in an understandable way. And he said this about dopamine. Good old dopamine, the chemical mover that gets us to chase whatever it is we want, whatever spells relief. For starving animals, dopamine makes the brain a vehicle for seeking food. For addicts, it sends the brain hunting for drugs. In fact, dopamine-powered desperation can change the brain forever because its message of intense wanting narrows the phenaptic change, focusing it like a powerful microscope on one particular reward. Whether in the service of food or heroin, love or gambling, dopamine forms a rut, a line of footprints in the neural flesh. And those footprints harden and become indelible, beating an intractable path to a highly specialized and limited pot of gold. These changes start a molecular reaction in the brain called a signaling cascade. So literally an engine of desire is started through our genes, through the DNA at the cellular level. These cascades cause the brain then to change the way it values desire. Neuroscientists such as Dr. Eric Nessler have written, and back in in 2005, our understanding of can natural behaviors such as to food or sex or gambling become actual brain-changing addictions began to change with papers like this by Dr. Nessler in Nature Neuroscience. Is there a common molecular pathway for all addictions, he wrote, behavioral and drugs. And he said, if you look at the last sentence, these natural addictions, that is compulsive consumption of natural rewards, which is pathological overeating, pathological gambling, and sexual addictions. And when Dr. Nessler uses the word addiction, he's not doing so lightly or flippantly. And he doesn't mean it even behaviorally, although he is correlating behavior. He's a neuroscientist talking about how synaptic change is affected in the brain with not only drug but also natural behaviors. A colleague of his, Wallace, wrote another paper looking at, and these were in laboratory animals, food and sex, and found that Delta Fos B, which is a powerful engine of brain desire, they said, Delta Fos B induction in the nucleus accumbens, remember the nucleus accumbens is that reward center, may mediate not only key aspects of drug addiction, but also so-called natural addictions involving compulsive consumption of natural rewards. So that pornography and food and these natural behaviors can become addictive is not a problem for most neuroscientists to understand now, not with what we're understanding about the brain. And critics would formally say, well, you're talking about lab rats, not people. And that's not true anymore. Uh, last year, a post-mortem study with cocaine addiction showed that the Delta Fos B cascade of desire that is there with sexuality, with food, with cocaine, is also just as functional in humans as well. And that paper came out um, in 2013. And what happens then is the DNA itself doesn't change, but we think now with addiction that what happens is which transcripts are mobilized actually change with addiction. So in other words, the brain becomes quicker at turning on those desire transcripts as the person becomes addicted. It changes what's called the confirmation of the DNA. We call this epigenics. And it changes the way the body 
looks at behavior and at desire. Let's talk for a moment about these natural molecular engines of desire. What makes us want? So salt craving is very powerful, particularly in animals that don't eat meat. If they don't have salt, they'll die. And I was in Australia lecturing a few years ago with a dear friend, and he is actually, uh, he's, we'd become close through, through, um, through a, a medical uh, colleague, actually through his wife, and I'm not breaking a HIPAA rule because she's a famous ballerina, and actually we were interviewed together on Australian National Radio. She had come over and I had done a procedure on her, and so it, it was public knowledge. But I went over, he invited me to lecture, and so I was in Australia lecturing, and he happens to be, of the, according to our National Academy of Sciences, my friend Derek Denton happens to be listed by our Academy of Sciences as the world expert on natural brain craving with salt metabolism. So it's pretty, pretty credible, and he's just a wonderful human being as well. While we were there, I said, Derek, have you looked at these salt craving, at this natural craving that they get, and have you compared that with drug, with addiction? He had not. And so he called Wolfgang Lipsky at Duke University, um, and we basically designed an experiment to look at that. And we found, lo and behold, that for the first time we, we showed in our experiment that the same gene sets that are turned on to tell that animal, you have this horrible natural craving for salt, you're going to die if you don't get it, are lo and behold, the same gene sets that are turned on that tell the person that's addicted to cocaine and heroin, you're going to die if you don't get the heroin. Same DNA sets. That had never been shown. And the word in our paper we used was usurping of pleasure reward systems important in survival. Our paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I was honored to be an author on that paper, one of the co-authors. Uh, National Geographic did a, an article on our paper, and they used the word uh, hijacking, that, hi, that cocaine and drugs hijack these natural engines of desire in our brain. And I think that's accurate. Now, for instance, these two slides show dendritic arborization. What is that? The one on the left is a more uninitiated brain wire cell. The one on the right, you can see a lot of extra sprouts on it. What happens, those sprouts represent neuroplasticity or neuromodulation. And they happen naturally in our brains with many things. Not everything, but powerful rewards can do it. If an animal, for instance, is depleted of salt to the point where they think they're going to die and then you give them salt, then they learn that they want the salt, and they arborize. They, they have this reaction. It turns out that cocaine does that. That was shown years ago. And just in the last couple of years, this paper, for instance, is from a study, a laboratory study, looking at sex and, and rodents. And lo and behold, it looks just like cocaine paper in terms of neuroplasticity. What does that mean? It means that sexuality is a powerful inducer of these engines of desire in our brain, of neuroplastic change, of dendritic arborization. When these neuroplastic changes drive us to pathologically want destructive behaviors or drugs, addiction is born. I remember I referred to this in the UK, Valerie Voon's study, and she found that individuals with severe pornography addiction that their brain shows an incentive sensitization, we call it, with fMRI scanning that looks very much like drugs such as cocaine. This study is not yet published. Um, she is head of the Compulsive Disorders Research Group at Cambridge University. I spoke with her in Phoenix last month and look forward to her work being published. But she was kind of surprised. She was pretty neutral. She said, well, I don't know if pornography will show it or not. 
I predicted it would myself based on what we know about Delta Vos B, and sure enough, it does look like a, a, a drug-type reaction. Now, does this mean that pornography use can become an addiction? Well, it does if one can understand the evidence, in my opinion, and the perspective. In other words, critics of the addiction model say there's no evidence of addiction because there's no prospective study yet published specifically looking at pornography. Now, there's about to be with Valerie Voon's study. But critics go even further. In a Salon article, they said... You know, there's not a smidgen of evidence, and to have the evidence, you would have to take two cohorts of children. This is the model of the Coalition for Pornography. You'd have to take one group of children that's not addicted, another group of children that's not addicted, give the one group then pornography and addict them, protect the others, follow them longitudinally, and then scan their brains and correlate with behavior for and after. So I don't think we'll see that study anytime soon. And so then the critics can sit back and say, well, so, you're never going to be able to prove it to me, right? Well, what about tobacco, for instance? If that's the standard to define addiction, then where is the tobacco study? You know, what I, the one where they take the two cohorts of children, they give one of them cigarettes, protect the others, let them smoke, and then study them before and after. <laughs> well, the study doesn't exist, of course, and it never will. And yet, remember the Tobacco 7 in front of Henry Wack Committee. All seven, with their experts, their PhD experts, said tobacco is not addictive. They're probably the only seven people in the world that think that. You know, President of Reynolds. Um, why, do, do the rest, why do the billions of the rest of us believe that it's addictive? Even though there's not that child-based prospective study. It's because we now understand neuroplasticity. We understand how the brain learns, and we understand that it happens with natural rewards as well. So the rest of us in the world understand that, yes, it can be an addiction. And that's why the American Society of Addiction Medicine redefined addiction in 2011. They're a group of medical doctors. They're very biologically based. Um, And their new definition says that addiction is a chronic, they use the word disease, of the brain affecting Three systems, reward, motivation, and memory. And also, for the first time, they defined addiction as including non-substance addiction, such as to food, sex, and gambling. So clearly they're saying, yes, pornography addiction um, is a brain addiction. ASAM doesn't quibble about it at all. Why the confusion? We'll get to that in just a moment with regard to the DSM. Norman Deutsch, for instance, interest at Columbia and the University of Toronto, said not the addictiveness of internet pornography is not a metaphor. Not all addictions are to drugs and alcohol. People can be seriously addicted to gambling, even to running. All addicts show a loss of, of the uh, loss of control of the activity, developed tolerance, so that they need higher and higher levels of stimulation for satisfaction, and experience withdrawal if they can't consummate the addictive act. All addiction involves long-term, sometimes lifelong, neuroplastic change in the brain. And the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, Nora Volkow, even called for changing the NIDA to the Institute on Diseases of Addiction to include natural addictions. She said to include addictions such as pornography, gambling, and food. Now, where's why the confusion? The DSM is used by psychologists and psychiatrists to diagnose and treat mental illness. 
and it has a, fun, a valuable function. There's been five editions. The problem with the DSM is it states it is not theoretical. In other words, it's not a biology book. It's just based on behavior and observation. So it's not trying to tell us why, what addiction is. And yet, people today, if addictions aren't listed as addictions in the DSM, they think they're not addictions. And it's simply a failure to understand the limitations of the DSM. For instance, that SpanLab article I referred to earlier said because pornography addiction is not in the DSM, turn your therapist in for treating you for something which does not exist. They've since removed this from the site, but it was there. That's why the DSM is so flawed, and Scientific American recently wrote a scathing article saying the DSM's fundamental flaw is that it says nothing about the biological underpinnings of mental disorders. I agree with this. The DSM is completely outdated with regard to the neuroscience and woefully needs an upgrade. So evidence, not a smidgen of evidence. Remember the slide earlier from Coalition for Pornography. Well, maybe it's evidence that they can understand because in the ASAM's website, to understand addiction requires an understanding of a broader network of neural connections involving forebrain as well as midbrain structures. So in other words, to understand addiction, it requires an understanding of some of these basic brain concepts that I'm describing this morning. What does the Coalition for Pornography say? For instance, Dr. Marty Klein, who defends pornography use and says it's not harmful, says another way to conceptualize sex addiction is a violation of today's, of society's moral standards, along with someone's distress about that violation. One should not self-stimulate too much, according to the common norms. One should not have too much indiscriminate sex, cheat on one's spouse, be too sexually involved with porn, objects, or those with whom there's no romantic love to redeem the sex, such as casual pickups or sex workers. The sex addiction concept concept helps patrol these arbitrary moral boundaries. So in other words, it's all relative. It's just your opinion. Yet Michael Miller of ASA, at its core, addiction isn't just a social problem or a moral problem or a criminal problem. It's a brain problem whose behaviors manifest in all these other areas. It's about underlying neurology, not outward actions. So I frequently challenge those when I'm in a secular setting and uh, and I've, I've published in, the, in, this, um, in this context, and they'll say, well, this is moral. I'll say, can you not use that word in this context? Yes, I may have my moral beliefs, but let's talk science. Can you do that? You're the one bringing up the moral. Let's talk about the harms of pornography independently, independent of morality. What about the biological and emotional harm? And they usually can't do it. They can't stand toe-to-toe with falling back on a free speech um, platform. Another one. Uh, David Lay said that pornography provides a legal outlet for illegal sexual behaviors or desires, and its consummation or availability has been associated with a decrease in sexual offenses, especially child molestation. We need better methods to help people who struggle with the high frequency of visual sexual stimuli, okay, not pornography, it's VSS, without pathologizing them or their use thereof. Interestingly, a paper that he and others at the SpanLab UCLA recently published that was widely echoed in the popular press said VSS may provide a legal outlet for illegal sexual behaviors or desires. Increased VSS consumption or availability has been associated with a decrease in sex offenses, especially child molestation and inhibition of aggression. Okay, these are are not true statements. Uh, They're based on faulty studies, yet the press eats this up, and I'll talk about that at the end. Now, if that's true, then Milton Diamond is the one that said that in several studies. 
And uh, it's a shame that Mayor Bloomberg didn't know this. In other words, if you watch it, you don't have to do it. Because all he had to do then to get New Yorkers and adolescents to quit eating all the high-fat foods and the big supersized drinks was show more commercials. Right? Show more commercials in New York so all the adolescents can just watch the hamburgers and they don't have to eat them. <laughs> or, um, you know, a million dollars for a 30-second Super Bowl ad? My gosh, that they need to quit doing this because people are going to just watch the cars and not buy them. I mean, think about it. It's, it's definitely ludicrous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And yet, that's what they say. I'm not going to go through and read all these slides. I can, uh, I'll work through Pamela to make this, these um, available because I want to move on um, about another 10 to 15 uh, minutes. Uh, 10, okay, I have another 10 minutes. So I just want to move on. So I'm going to... But, but this... Okay, this is Gail Saad, Psychology Today. No cause and effect been demonstrated with any negative consequence in that top one. And the bottom one... In other words, the more that one watched porn, the stronger the benefits. These are patent lies. They're absolutely not true. There are many studies that show harm. Um, Dr. Layden's going to talk about many of them. Uh, Dr. Manning. I mean, there's so many that we don't have time to even begin to talk about them now, but but these are not true. Let's talk a little bit about some of the biological aspects. Tom Wolfe, for instance, said that the bigger pornography gets, the lower the birth rate comes. He's the author of The Right Stuff and the Bar the Vanities. He has a PhD in American Studies from Yale. And it's true. So it's, the correlation is that the higher pornography gets, the lower the birth rate goes. And so when Milton Diamond says the higher pornography goes, the lower rape goes, he's looking at outdated and inaccurate government statistics. The studies are worthless. And yet society, press, Use it as if it's gospel. Um, we know, for instance, that rape is grossly underreported. So going back to Diamond Studies, saying that pornography decreases rape. It's simply not true. Um, sexual assault, one of the most underreported crimes, 60% left unreported. Sexual assault in the military, rape and violence against women. Um, I, they go on and on. Uh, Obama's targeting sexual assault epidemic in colleges now. Uh, India. So... Uh, Yet, the Supreme Court, based on these, this faulty uh, surmising that pornography decreases rape, has actually legalized virtual child porn. So, computer-generated and child porn cartoon with no actual children is legal. And uh, Pat Truman, um, head of morality and media, said that ruling was a disaster, what the fail- court failed to understand is whether the image is real or composite. As long as it appears to be a child, has the same effect. Practical effect of the rulings, many judges will not allow child porn prosecutions to proceed unless the prosecutor can establish the person depicted is actual. It's absolutely ridiculous, but that's my point. The Coalition for Pornography is publishing this stuff, and people are believing it. So it's important that we understand what they're doing so we can take action. Now, look, these doctors of public opinion, um, I, I hate to say, but this is my profession. Just some examples of how don't trust everything a doctor says. You know, I'm a doctor, trust me thing. Mm, be careful. So this is George Washington. He had a throat infection. Did he die from the throat infection? Probably not. His doctors, in trying to relieve the heat from the fever, bled him of over half of his blood volume in a short period of time. George Washington was bled to death by his doctors. Sorry, that's my profession. We didn't do so well. Um, Fifty years ago, um, you know, Isaiah scripture, I think it's absolutely perfect for this. All right, this guy's an ENT. You know, he treats throats of all things. 
you know, give your throat a vacation, a permanent one. <laughs> or what about a cough? Do you really want to get rid of that cough? Maybe forever? You know, maybe not ever worry about the cough because you're addicted to heroin. These are real, this is 100 years ago. This is real stuff. And they all say physician recommended, all of them. Uh, do you have an addiction to alcohol? Use cocaine tonic. Yeah, it works great. <laughs> or what about your children? They're crying at night with that toothache. Look at those little kids. Give them cocaine toothache drops. <laughs> physician and surgeon recommended. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, but it's true. Now, Victor Klein, just in the last few minutes, uh, we're about, remember I talked about neuroplasticity. Recovery is positive neuroplasticity. We're all about positive, okay? So four things that he said, and I think these are just as true today as when he said them. An individual must be personally motivated to do whatever it takes. They have to come to that moment. Second, safe environment. Third, 12-step support. And fourth, counselor therapist with special training and success in treating sexual addictions. Now, my wife and I have had the opportunity to work for years in our church's addiction recovery program. We've met many wonderful people. And years ago, um, I had a phone call from a beloved family member in another state. He had experienced a sexual addiction that had devastated his life and his family's life. He called me. He was driving home to his parents. He said, I understand you're doing some writing about this. Can you tell me anything? And I said, well, I know of a 12-step group in the area where you're going. Um, just when you get there, go. And that was all. He got home. He went to the meeting. He sat there in the parking lot, clutching the wheel, clutching the steering wheel. And he probably would have there, he told me, the whole night. He just couldn't do it. Walking into that room was too big a step. Suddenly he heard a knock on his window, and there was a man looking at him. It turns out this man had experienced a similar addiction years ago and had many years of recovery and now served as a sponsor to other men so struggling. And he was coming to that meeting that night only to support another person. As he was walking into the room, he saw a car in the parking lot. He saw a man sitting over a steering wheel, gripping the wheel. He walked over and he knocked. Can I help you? You look lost. He helped him out of the car and into the meeting and into a life of recovery and of peace. That man that knocked on that window was our dear friend Stephen Croshaw. Stephen gave me permission to share that story. I think when I think of this powerful, powerful moment that changed this person's life. I think of Patrick Carnes when he talked about, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but he talks about those who have experienced what he calls growth stage with recovery from sexual addiction and how they are able to actually change and heal other people. That the compulsion or addictive behavior and subsequent recovery have given them a greater perception, compassion, and presence. They serve as role models for other recovering people and are literally helping our whole society heal. I think of Jimmy Stewart. Remember, it's a wonderful life. Remember, he's in Martini's bar and he's crying. He's, he's, he's absolutely devastated. He says, God, he, he cries that prayer. God, God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, 
show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, God. He was crying. He was emotional. Frank Copper, the director, said, that was an awesome take, but I need another one. Let, let's, okay, ready? We're going to shoot it over again. Jimmy wiped his eyes, got up, and walked out. And they had to do this take from a long shot. They had to do a blow-up because Jimmy would not reshoot the scene. It was his first movie back from being Colonel Jimmy Stewart, flying 20 combat missions in World War II. It was his first movie back, and it hit him. It was real. Well, in the movie... He didn't kill himself, did he? Remember George Bailey went to the bridge, but Clarence saved him, right? Clarence jumped in. And that is the power of 12-step. Those that become healed then are able to experience healing by helping other people. I call it the George Bailey effect. And that's one of the powerful messages of 12-step, is to help others, you can't kill yourself. He He jumped into the river, but he jumped in not to kill himself, but to save Clarence in the movie. So... Just as addiction's a neuroplastic process, so is recovery. And these trails in the brain, while the person in recovery lives a wonderful life addiction, they always remember that there's a trail and they avoid those areas of the woods, knowing they can be repaved. I'll talk more about that in my breakout. So, five things briefly that we can do to change the debate. One, increase research funding for addiction both biological, demographic, and behavioral emotional effects. We have many young people wanting to do this. Two, more balanced press coverage of research. The press takes every pro-pornography paper, runs with it, and they don't talk about those that show harm. For instance, Anna Bridges' paper recently published showing 90% of scenes in in the popular pornography of today show aggression towards women. This should have been headlines. And yet, it was largely ignored. Whereas this paper, published by the Span Lab at UCLA, which said, hmm, pornography doesn't look addictive. If you do EEGs on those with pornography addiction, it just looks like they're born with high desire. This paper was published, and the press ran with it. What's interesting is I published a paper side-by-side in the same journal at the same time, talking about the neuroscience. The press ignored this paper and published the other one. And they never talked to peers on both sides. There was no press expert saying they were just grabbing the one that looked great to go with. I I republished a response to this paper, this EEG paper recently last month, in the same journal. And again, the press ignores the peer-reviewed response, but continues to run with the pornography is not an addiction, despite there being a peer-reviewed response that's never been rebutted. So third, understand the addictive nature of pornography and treat it accordingly. So it's common, for instance, for religious leaders to, and we, we're so grateful for so many religious leaders that help. It's, it's such a blessing in the lives of so many with addiction. And yet there's an opportunity to do more. There's an opportunity to not just treat the spiritual aspects, but to understand the addictive aspects to help that person gain 12-step and, and professional support so it's not a short-term fix. So they're able to gain long-term recovery. As Mark Haney said, pornography can be an addiction. These just-say-no types approaches will only create more frustration and self-defeating ideation. The intervention and treatment must recognize the problem as a full addiction and treat it with the same considerations given to alcohol or chemical substances. Jason's Carroll article, it's 90% of our young men, it's a third of our young women are afflicted with this. We must understand this to change the debate. We must understand the betrayal trauma and support family members of those who are afflicted. Frequently, 
Many go to a religious spiritual leader. Many times these leaders are male and while well-meaning, don't have the full emotional understanding perhaps to help that woman in that particular way at that time. How much better served she would be if that leader also allowed her to to function in groups that would understand her problem. Other women, perhaps, who had experienced the similar, similar afflictions uh, in their marriages, in their lives, other mothers. And yet it's, it's actually seen by these women as actual, as actual ad, uh, adultery to them. In this study by Bergner and Bridges, the theme that runs through their letters is that the man has taken the most intimate aspect of the relationship, sexuality, which is supposed to express the bond of love between the couple and confined it exclusively to the relationship and shared it with countless fantasy women. So it is adultery to the woman. And fifth, decide to personally make a difference. Are we willing to be inconvenienced? Are we willing to be slandered? Are we embarrassed to help? Are we afraid someone will ask why we're interested? People ask me, um, Don, why are you so interested in this? I'm like, why are you not? Why aren't we all? Are we humans? Are we brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, grandfathers, grandmothers? This is a war, and the Coalition for Pornography is using every means available. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran minister in Germany who was executed by the Nazis for opposing Hitler, said, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is evil. Not to is to act. He spoke with his life. And Winston Churchill said, We will have no truce or parley with you or the grisly gang who work your will when speaking to those same Nazis. He said, You do your worst and we'll do our best. We ask no favors of the enemy. We seek from them no compunction. We do not expect to be hit without being hit back. And we intend to, with every week, to hit harder. Prepare yourselves then, my friends and comrades, for this renewal of your exertions. We shall never turn from our purpose, however somber the road, however grievous the cost, because we know that out of this time of trial and tribulation will be born a new freedom and glory for all mankind. Pornography is a drug. It produces an addictive neurochemical trap. As Shakespeare said, quote, the expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action, past reason hunted, and no sooner had past reason hated, as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad, end quote. While we must continue to fight the good fight legally in society, we are way beyond avoidance as our only defense. Pornography wants you. It wants your husband or wife. It wants your son or daughter. It wants your grandchildren, your in-laws. It doesn't share well, and it doesn't leave easily. Abraham Lincoln said when faced with a similar war, if we do not all join now to save the good old ship of the Union, we will never have a chance to pilot her on another voyage. It's clear we've not done enough in the past. We must change that. It is time for us to leave our safe and comfortable moorings and venture out into the fray. It is time for politicians to quit ignoring this issue, as some are not. Thank you. Here in Utah. And use their their role as part of the national legislative agenda as well. It is time for judges to wake up and use their intellect and power to protect people instead of pornography. It is time for religious leaders of all faiths to learn about and understand addiction on a new level so they can enable recovery instead of merely unwittingly enabling addiction. 
It is time for the press to tell the whole story and inform the public about both sides of the debate. We need you. We need your time, your energy, your efforts, your interest. Please join us in this fight for sanity and serenity, for peace and prosperity for today and for all our tomorrows. God bless us all. Thank you.